Well, good morning. My name is Mark Simons. I'm a member here at Rolling Hills Community Church. Been here for about 10 years, and I'm a father of three young men, Caleb, Luke, and Justin, and I'm married to Julie. So way back when, I was hired on the police force, and I was 20 years old, and I spent 30 years in my career in the same department. And during that time, you learned about chain of command, you know, hierarchy. I had a supervisor who took my title working in the warrant division and changed it to where I had to work domestic abuse cases. I did not enjoy doing that, but over time I honored him by just doing, because that was his priority, so it became my priority. My partner and I said we learned how to be better policemen. And so what really redeemed us in that we called ourselves the relationship police. And then we learned how to really work with women mostly that were victims of abuse and learn how to come alongside of them in their in their struggle in this really dark time in their life and, and even bring the, the man into the picture and sometimes even redeem the relationship. So that's something I never saw coming and if you would have asked me during the, during the time of it, I would have never guessed that I would be a better person for it, but I think God really did redeem that. It, nothing works to me. It doesn't really, the world doesn't work unless you're honoring those who are put in authority. It just models everything. It models, you know, a husband and wife and the mutual respect and honor. You know, it honors a father and a son or a parent and a, and a child. It just, my son, who's 18, was my student for several years from sixth grade all the way through 12th grade in the youth group. And this last year, he graduated, and I asked him if he would consider coming back and team teaching with me the ninth grade boys. And his response was, I was wondering when you're gonna get around to that, Dad, which just warmed my heart, right? And I believe that's, you know, he's leading, and I, I look at those young men that were teaching, and at first I thought, well, they'd be looking to me as the senior man, and they're looking at my son, and they just love him. And they're like, he's the, he's the guy now, he's the guy. And I just think that's such an awesome legacy to pass on to my son. Now he can bring up young men in the faith much like I did when I was his leader. I think the thing that makes me the most excited about these stories every week before, um, before this time of message is that everybody in this room, every story that we're hearing, every person that's here, really is a David and really can connect with what God did by giving us this fellow in the Old Testament who wasn't just a precursor in so many different ways to giving us Jesus and pointing us to a cross and a resurrection and a, and a gift that we've been given by the grace of God that we did not expect and did not deserve. But it, it also inspires us to look at our own lives and pick apart the points in our stories um, that intersect Scripture in a way that allows us to be the same people those who point others to, those who are a precursor in someone else's life from knowing and experiencing God. Um, happy Father's Day, gentlemen who are out there, and then to all of us who, who, are, who are in this day recognizing that it's, it's set aside for fathers, um, that it's set aside to, to let us on. And Father's Day didn't come until after Mother's Day in our nation's history, and I, and I, I love knowing the, the history and the story behind holidays. In 1907, there was a, some sort of earthquake or some sort of mining incident in West Virginia where 350 men lost their lives, and, and, and one girl, uh, six months later, decided to have this big event in her community to honor um, all of the fathers who passed away, including her own, as a result of that tragedy. Um, all across the country, there began to be these celebrations popping up. One of note um, happened on the West Coast, and, and a girl who heard in 1909 a, a Mother's Day sermon 
thought to herself, there really ought to be a Father's Day too because her mother died in childbirth and her dad single-handedly raised five kids. And she thought there ought to be a day to honor a dad just like that. You throw in a couple of presidents, Coolidge, Johnson, and eventually Nixon, and we now have a, a nationwide holiday to remember dads. And it, it's, it's bittersweet for people because there are folks in the room who've, who've lost a father. There, there are folks in the room who never had a father. There are folks in the rooms who, who had or have a, a fantastic father, but none of us have an ideal father. And, and there's baggage that comes with either section of the story. Um, ultimately, what we have is a father that's supposed to, by their presence or lack thereof it, point us to the idea of a heavenly father. First Corinthians, Paul writes to the church there in chapter 10, he says, hey, all of these things happen, referencing all the Old Testament stories and all the Old Testament characters and the nature of the people who live there. He wrote the idea that now all of these things happened for you as an example and a warning of how you're not supposed to live. So on both sides of the equation, we get great examples, and sometimes, sadly, we get not so great examples, but ultimately both of them can point us to the perfect example that we need in Jesus. And even though we're spending our time in the Old Testament, these Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel all summer long, even though we're spending our time in Old Testament books, they are pointing us so, so clearly to a New Testament gospel that gives us Jesus and tells us that God is for us, that he loves us, that he has a plan for us, that every single hurt that's happened in our life, every single part of the story that's been written is an opportunity to, to know him better and then to point others to him as a result. I'm thankful for that. So happy Father's Day. A couple years ago, um, my friend Chase Baker and I, pastor at Rolling Hills, he's primarily at the Franklin campus, but services all locations. He and I were on a little bit of a road trip. It was to preview campsites for us to take middle school and high school kids and even elementary school kids on from Rolling Hills. And we did like a couple other, you know, you head out of town and you realize that there are some spots in our city where 40 and 65 and 24 are kind of all basically the same road. And so we're heading north towards Kentucky on what was at the time 65 and 24 combined and, and knowing that there was an exit coming up, and we get about 30 miles outside the city, and looking at the exit numbers and the mile markers, we started figuring out to ourselves, we are not going in the right direction. We had veered really far off course, because when those roads decided not to be the same thing anymore, we took the wrong one. My first job out of college and married to Susan, newlywed guy, was working with uh, strategic focus cities for the North American Mission Board, taking kids basically on mission trips to cities in the Northeast. And you land in New York City and you look, some of the signs are bad and some of them are old and there are stops and you get a group of 40 kids on the subway and you basically just cross your fingers that the first stop is the actual direction that you need to go. And I can tell you, there was a time or two where I had to say, okay, the next stop is ours. The next stop was not ours. It was just the chance for us to get off, cross the platform and get on the right train because we were headed in the wrong direction. And there were some moments where we went way too far down the line before we realized we were going in the wrong spot. We've asked a question this summer, how did we get here? How did we get here to this point? How do we get here to this point in our nation's history? How do we get here to this point in your personal history? How did you get here to this point in biblical history? We get here because at some point in our life, we headed in that direction. We boarded the train, we got in the car, and we went in that direction. Sitcoms long before I was born had hero dads. But at some point, we moved from Ward Cleaver. You guys know this. A lot of you know this one. It's like Leave it to Beaver. Ward Cleaver, like iconic, like near-perfect dad. And then we went to Homer Simpson. Like, and you can't get much more opposite than that. We moved from Father Knows Best 
Um, and and my, we love watching these old black and white shows of like these really great, we moved from father knows best to father knows least. You, you recognized who that was, yeah. We moved from, even in my generation of growing up with some great dads, we moved from Danny Tanner, who could really solve every problem that his kids had, to bumbling Phil, who couldn't solve anything if he tried. Like, there's, there's a movement that's happened. And, and in the idea of writing television shows, it's called a trope, this iconic metaphorical character. And, and now we now associate the idea of father in our country. We associate it with the idiot who makes a big mess that mom has to come back and clean up, or the kids are smarter than the dads because we've moved in that direction where now all dads on television are kind of morons. And the millennials probably blame the boomers for this, and the boomers probably blame the millennials for this. I saw this meme this week that was like, boomers want to blame millennials for everything, but who covered up all the hardwood floors, Patricia? Like, that was a big deal. Like, what kind of mistakes were being made along the way? Because at some point, regardless of what generation did it, at some point, we got in the car and we headed a certain direction. And now, we sit here in 2019 wondering, how in the world did we get here? It's because we, we boarded the train got in the car, fastened our seatbelt, and we went in that direction. Barna released this year some, some Father's Day stats, and these aren't Father's Day stats of like all kids. It's specifically teens, like 13 to 18-year-olds, and it's not just specifically all teens. It's specifically Christian teens, and they define that as a practicing Christian teen as those who attend a religious service at least once a month, nominal, but we'll take it, say their faith is very important. We like that. We want them, 13 to 18-year-olds, to say that faith is important, and they self-identify as a Christian. So of those kids, those who are attending religious services, self-identifying as Christians and say that faith is very important to them, they were asked, whose faith influenced you the most? 68%, more than half said mom. It's not a contest, at least not a very close one. Who influenced you praying? 63%, mom. Who influenced you learning about the Bible? 66%. Mom. Who managed discussions about God in your home? 70%. Mom. Who taught religious traditions? 72%. Mom. Who responded to your questions about faith? 72%. Mom. Who set the faith-filled example in your home? 73%. Mom. Who encouraged church attendance while you were growing up and now, especially in the teen years? 79%. Moms. There were only two errors in the areas. There was lots of, maybe errors. I hope there weren't errors because it's a study. There were only two areas in the study where dads came out even slightly 50% more ahead than mom, finances and politics. How did we get here? Well, we, we, we got in the car and we headed in that direction and we went precisely the route that would take us here. It, it's, it's very similar to what's happening in the David story. So, so la two weeks ago, this kid was out tending the sheep. His father didn't even bother to call him in to have him pass in front of the prophet. And, and, and you think about the father issues that must have come in that moment. Like, all of these brothers get a chance to be the one, and you don't even bother to get that kid to come in and pass before the prophet. Do you have any other children, Samuel asked, and Jacob was, uh, uh, Jesse, sorry, was like, hey, well, we do, but he's the kid that's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel said, we're not going to sit down until he comes. Bring him here. He was the one. And then last week, of course, he was the one. He was out tending his father's sheep. He had been going back and forth to like bring Saul pleasure while he was playing the harp and like giving him music because that apparently gives us pleasure. We like the sound of it. And so he was going back and forth and he went to take his brothers who were on the battlefield some rations and he sees this giant who had been there for weeks 
taunting the armies of God and telling them that they would be defeated. And only David, the kid who came from taking care of the sheep, was man enough to stand in that stead. And so last week when we left David, he was holding the head of a giant in his hands because he defeated him by the power. How did we get to this point in our story? It's the car that we boarded. Because a couple of weeks ago, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we read these words. It says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's King David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. How did we get here? We've got a kid that's walking in the Spirit. How did he stand in front of a giant? He's walking in the Spirit. We're a people that because it's America and we have all sorts of opportunities and all sorts of engagements, we look at the idea that someone has education or someone has experience. How many of the young people in this room have been told that they weren't qualified for a job because they didn't yet have any experience? And how many of them went home and tweeted to their friends, they want me to have experience, but no one will give me a job so that I can actually have the experience? It's a challenge. But we highlight the idea of education, way to go. You're in a whole lot of debt because you're here doing that. Education, we highlight the idea of experience. We highlight the idea of power and prowess and even character under pressure in our modern day culture. And none of it is going to take us where we need to go. None of it is the right vehicle to be in because we need to be a people who are led by and empowered by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, since we're made alive by the Spirit, since if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life and repented of sin and determined that you are in need of the forgiveness that only Christ can provide, you were inspired to believe that, to know that, to trust it, to walk through that door, to step across a line of faith and declare Jesus as Savior and Lord, to be one of the Barna Christian kids who say we attend religious services like maybe once a month. Our faith is very important and we self-identify as Christians. For you to have become a person that self-identified as a Christian, you had to be forgiven of your sins determined that you were going to walk in a brand new life following Christ your Savior. That happened because of the Holy Spirit present in the world calling people to come to Christ. We live. We're only made alive by that Spirit. So he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, challenge your giants by the Spirit. If you live, if you're made alive by the Spirit, then then meet your problems and challenges in this world by that same Spirit. And it was that that governed David's life. And it's that that had departed because of his disobedience and because he wanted to control. He wanted to have power. He wanted to have reputation. It's that Spirit that left Saul. How did we get here to this part in our story? King David is filled up with the Spirit of God. King Saul, not so much. And so we land in chapter 18. Chapter 18 and 19, we're going to tag together this week. We can't possibly read all of the verses, but it's, it's a lot of the same story over and over and over again. We have a very jealous king, upset and angry at this young boy who is going to become king one day. And it says in chapter 18, starting with this one, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. This is a story in and of itself, the fact that these guys are best friends, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him. He didn't go back to tend the sheep anymore. He did not return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant, a vow, a bond, basically a promise because to, with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, and he even gave him his sword, his bow, and his belt. What's, what's, what's mine is yours. 
And this is significant because you've got Jonathan, the son of the king, who wasn't just giving him any robe, he was giving him a royal robe. He wasn't just giving him any tunic, he was giving him a designated tunic that would have only been worn by one of the princes in the castle. He was giving him a sword, not just any sword, but his sword. He was giving him a bow, not just any bow, but his bow. This is significant. And along with it came a promise that I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to stick by you no matter what. It says in verse 5, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. How could you not? Why was he successful? He was in that car. He was heading in that direction. The Spirit of God was on him. It says David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, the the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's not a competition, at least not a very close one, because David is the clear winner. It says Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Like It's that whole, like, Carly Simon, you probably think this song is about you. It actually was about you, Saul. It actually was about you, and you weren't the one. More so, it was about David, because he was. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Verse 10 is a hard one. It says, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul. He's prophesying in his house when David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, and Saul had a spear in his hand, because you know, I sit at home with a spear in my hand. Like, okay, like, like Netflix and this one, spear and this one, y'all don't, don't mess with me, like what's going on? So he's sitting at home with a spear in his hand, because that's normal, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. We read scripture and we have a problem with that context. Like why would God, the great God of this universe, who's supposed to be loving and supposed to be gracious and supposed to be kind all the time, send an evil spirit from God on Saul? And this is a couple different contexts. And scholars give us a couple different answers that it could possibly be. One is it's evil just means troublesome. Just means that like troublesome spirit, that anxiety attack, that difficulty, that, like, that, that fear that's kind of stirred up inside you, that, that God would have allowed that to happen to Saul, but not just in a tiny way, but in a forcible, big kind of way. Spirit in this context could mean the word mood. Like this is just Saul in a really treacherous, terrible mood. The, also the idea of from God is the exact same context of used by God. So this evil spirit wasn't just from God, it was used by God ultimately to accomplish his will in these guys' lives. How did we get here? Because you have a shepherd boy that's walking in the spirit of God, heading in the right direction, moving in the right vein, and you've got a wayward king who has taken the wrong exit and now needs a a terrible, terrible, terrible detour. There are some truths that are worth uncovering in this passage of Scripture. It goes on to say um, that Saul tried to kill him again. He tried to set him up for death. He tried to send him out to war, knowing that he would probably come back dead. And, and I read these passages of Scripture and apply it to our lives so that we can understand the David that we're supposed to be. And I, I, and I think that this bears saying, you are not, it's in your notes this morning, you are not what others think. Whether that's good or bad, you are not what others think but only what God declares. 
It didn't matter in this moment that the people didn't have this great vantage, good viewpoint of Saul. It also didn't really matter that much that they had this great, growing, fanatical viewpoint of David. Because they're just the others. At this point in the story, maybe you're the, the most celebrated guy in your office. Maybe you are like the, the best, most like envied mom in the community. Maybe you are like number one GPA, ruining the curve for everyone else in your class. Maybe you're the rising. Like all of that good reputation, none of it matters. In fact, ultimately, it can be a snare to you in your life. And in the same vein, you're not the bad stuff either. Not the terrible kid, the one who was disobedient, the one who who didn't listen, the one who was never going to amount to anything, the one who longed so badly to hear these words from a dad, I'm proud of you, I love you, but but never did. Instead, you heard the ways that you were supposed to improve, you heard the ways of everything that you did. Like, you're, you're, you're not that great reputation, you're not that bad reputation. I had an evaluation, we've got some MVUG staff from the Lifeway camp here in Nashville with us this morning, and one of the coordinators from... 20 years ago when I served on the Fuge Camp staff, um, said to us when we got evals at the end of the week, back then they were handwritten on paper, not done on an app like they are today, but like these handwritten evals on a paper. And he told us this, he said, take your very best eval, throw it away. Not literally throw it away, but put it aside. Take your very worst eval, throw it away, not literally throw it away, but put it aside. Because the truth of what happens this week is probably the stuff in the middle. You're not the very best things that people say about you. Don't get a big head. You're also not the worst things that people say about you. Don't take it too personally. You are what the Lord declares about you. And when Jesus' disciples came up and, 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 and talked to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. I love the very first opening words because the Lord Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, Jesus invited those people to do what no rabbi had ever done in the history of their Jewish religion, walking around Palestine and living in Galilee. He invited them to do something unique and different. He invited them to look at the great God of this universe and to call him Father. And the only reason that's possible is because of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed over us. We are invited to be the children of God, the beloved children of God. You're not what the world says, good or bad. You're only what God declares. We referenced him last week. We'll reference him again this week. Gideon, yet passages before, long before Samuel came to find a new king named David, there was this fellow named Gideon. He was threshing wheat on, uh, 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 threshing his wheat in this wine press, hidden from the Midianite army. And this angel of the Lord shows up and he says, "Go in the strength that you have, the strength that you already have, mighty." warrior. Gideon was the smallest in his clan and the weakest in Manasseh, and the Lord looked at him and said, you are a mighty warrior. You're not what the world says, but only what God declares. Maybe you had an awesome dad, maybe you didn't. But in Christ, 1 John 1, 9, we're declared forgiven. In Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, we're offered salvation. In Christ, Matthew 10, 31, we're valued as way more than many birds in the air. John, 1 John 3, 2, we're called his child. And we're just waiting for dad to come home and to bring us back to himself. You're not what others think, good or bad, but only what the Lord declares yet. Yet. There's, there's a yet there. There's a comma. There's a but. There's a transition in that sentence. 
the company that you keep does speak a word about who you are. And that's evidenced in this scripture. It's evidenced by the relationship that, that Jonathan has with David. They became one in spirit. They loved each other. They had a covenant friendship together. They could depend on one another. They could lean on one another. They could protect one another. And David would go on to do for Jonathan what Jonathan also did for David. Chapter 19 gives us more of the same. Because David was eventually allowed, and it's another part of the story, allowed to go and marry one of Saul's daughters. And in one of his murderous attacks where he was trying to capture David, he wanted to use his daughter against him. He was trying to capture David. She found out about it, and she told David, chapter 19, you can read about it, to sneak away in the middle of the night. You know what she did? She put an idol under the bed cover so that when the guards came in, they would think that that was David trying to sleep, and they would attack him in that place. I don't know why she had an idol. She should not have been worshiping at a false idol. David, if he was a good husband, he would have made them get rid of that false idol, but the false title was there. It was a household icon, and she put it like pillows, like a kid sneaking out of their house at night, pillows under the cover. That does not fool your parents, but it did fool Saul. But she protected him, and she risked her own life as a daughter of the king to take care of her husband, David. Proverbs 13.20 is a verse that I used to go over with students ad nauseum when I was a youth pastor. It's, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And you think that that should be true. Like, if you walk with wise people, you will become a wise person. And then you think the antithesis is probably true. If you walk with fools, you will become a foolish person. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that if you walk with dumb people, you'll become dumber. It says if you walk with those people, you will suffer the consequences of those relationships. You're not what the world says about you, but only what God declares you are yet. We can look at you and determine a little bit more about you and the God that you serve based on the company that you keep. That says a word about you. And what Jonathan's advocacy for and what Michal's advocacy for David in this moment said about him was that he was God's anointed, chosen leader of Israel, and that he was filled up with the protecting, powerful spirit of God. I think anybody in this circumstance might have asked the question, why is this happening to me? Like, didn't Samuel come over to my house and pick me out of a lineup and tell me that I was going to be the next king of Israel? Why on earth then, every time I turn around, is somebody throwing a spear at my face? Like, why is all this bad stuff happening? Gideon said that to the angel. Go in the strength you have, mighty warrior. And then he raised his hand and he said, hold up just a minute. If God is with us, if God is with us the way that he promised to be with David in this moment, the power of the Lord's Spirit came upon him. If the power of the Lord's Spirit is upon you, if, if God is with you, then why is this bad stuff happening to us? Gideon asked, like, if God is with us, then why is this happening? Where are all the wonders and miracles that we heard about from our ancestors? And that's an important note for us. We talked about it last month in this idea of leverage because we're not just going to leverage our education and our opportunities and the platforms that we have. We're also going to leverage the, the pain and the difficulty that we've walked through in life because we have to as committed believers in Jesus Christ. This too could be a part of the Barna study. You're going to attend a religious service once a month. You're going to self-identify as a Christian. You're going to say that your faith is important for you. But you, for you to literally be walking in the spirit of Jesus, you have to believe this next sentence. That God being with you does not mean freedom from adversity or disappointment. 
And the reason you have to believe that is because when, not if, disappointment and adversity come, that is not an excuse to throw your hands up in the air and say, where is God? He abandoned me. Because we're invited to know that someone who is filled up, someone who's been anointed, someone who the powerful spirit of God has come on in their life is still facing difficult circumstances. Spears are whizzing by his face, y'all. And it says to us the same word that we see printed on pages for us throughout Scripture in so many different character stories that are given to us as an example, that just because God is with you does not mean that you will live a life that is free from adversity or disappointment. David's wife wasn't the the first daughter that he was promised. Ultimately, he was promised that first daughter. Knowing that he wasn't worthy to marry a king's daughter, he kind of said, nope, can't do that. And she was taken away and given to another man. You can read about that in, in, in chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. Talk about disappointment. Well, I'm not going to get to be the king's son-in-law this go-around. Spears come and talk about adversity. Walking in the Spirit of God did not protect David from being attacked by the enemy of God. And I think that that is part and partial to our story as well. In fact, difficulty, it's in your notes, is ultimately part of God's plan to grow you as his disciple. And we define disciple here because we want to make sure that there's no mistake for what the word means. It's literally a growing follower of Jesus Christ. And we say a growing follower of Jesus Christ because a disciple never arrives at the destination, not till heaven. You die, then you're there. But whoa, until then, we are always to be growing and maturing in faith in Jesus. The water around the cross is always moving and it's taken us somewhere. We're growing disciples in Jesus Christ. And we say Christ, and we think it's an important part of that sentence because we're not just growing disciples in Jesus, some Middle Eastern teacher who was a rabbi. We're not just growing disciples of a guy who could do some miracles and help a bunch of people. We're not just growing disciples of Jesus who, who, who walked around and did great things and taught people about love and, and, and like served disenfranchised people like widows and orphans and even Gentiles and, and like helped the least of these. We are followers of Jesus who is the Christ, the one and only Son of God who gave his life for us. We're not just following some really inspirational words. We're following the creator God who gave them a disciple as a growing follower of Jesus Christ. And we go back to Gideon's question because I imagine that it was a question that could have been playing over and over and over in David's mind every time a spear whizzed by him and he saw his life flash before his eyes. Where's the wonder? Where's the miracle? Where, where is God in crisis? For the Gideon story, this... This fire came out and soaked up an, an offering on an altar. It tells us that the wonder, the, the wonder, the miracle that we're looking for is in the consumption of the offering on the altar. The wonder is in the miracle of God consuming his people. And so where's the wonder in David's life? The wonder in David's life is that a shepherd boy could be so consumed by God that he was willing to fight a giant. The, the, the wonder is that a shepherd boy who was so consumed with God that he wouldn't walk in, in, in a lack of integrity when he was trying to seize a throne. The, the, the wonder is in a kid whose life was so consumed by God that he didn't see the attacks of the enemy as anything other than God's providential hand taking him on the route that he 
needed to, to go. David posed a, a powerful threat to, to Saul's power, but he was God's choice for king. Are you a threat to the power of the enemy in this world? Are you? The reputation that, that David had and the reason why Jonathan loved him so much in, in chapter 19, starting with verse 4, it says that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He's, he's even a benefit to the enemy here. It says he took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. And the Lord won a great victory for all Israel. And you saw it, and you were glad? Why would then you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Because he was a threat to, to Saul's power. He was a, a threat to Saul's reputation, what other people thought about him. He was a, a threat to making a difference in that kingdom, even by the good that he did. Sometimes we wonder, like, by the good that you do, why does it still seem like the enemy attacks? And what we believe about being firmly rooted in Jesus Christ is that the enemy can't take you, but he can prevent you from taking anybody else with you. His desire is to ruin your reputation and to ruin your witness and to ruin any opportunity that you have to do good for all Israel, for all Belmont, for all Nashville, for all Middle Tennessee. Like he's coming at you because you are a threat to his power. And so sometimes when we face great difficulty in life, we have to ar somehow arrive at the conclusion that the reason that we're facing this difficulty in life is because the enemy is not pleased with the way that we are sacrificially living that life. And if you are living a life right now that's free from any kind of difficulty and free from any kind of pain and free from any kind of adversity and free from any kind of attacks of the enemy... I don't want to say it, but it might be a call to evaluate said life and really beg the question, how much of a threat are you really? Because if you are Galatians 5.25, alive in the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, on the right interstate, heading in the right direction, in the right vehicle, going down the right. If that is true of your life, there will be guaranteed attacks in your life from an enemy to whose power you are a threat. So, so we look at David's life and we say that he was God's choice for king. But still, even as God's choice, it didn't bypass the process. I want to bypass processes. Oh, I want things to turn out easier in life, and I want them to be less complicated, and I want to not have to do difficult things to get right outcomes. That's just laziness, and it's an admission of guilt in front of you today. Like, I want things to be easier, but they often aren't. There's a great story towards the end of chapter 18. It's that Saul promises... That, that, that other daughter, Michal, to, who was in love with David, that, that he could marry her, but then he wants to use her as a trap to 
snare at David's life. He decides that, hey, you can have my daughter, but you're going to need to provide a dowry. Well, you have already let us know that you're kind of poor, and so in order to have the right dowry to marry my daughter, you're going to have to go out and kill a hundred Philistines. You killed the biggest one. Now you have to go kill a hundred moderately sized ones, and you have to bring me the... Um, um, you, the you know off of their you know, like, okay, foreskin. Okay, I said it real fast. Like that, like these uncircumcised, we called Goliath that, you uncircumcised Philistine, we know what that means. Like, we have a son, we know what that means. Okay, so we're checking it out. And, and like, you bring me, bring me the proof, the hundred you know what's off of the you know what's of the guys that you kill. He thought for sure, Saul's thinking to himself, for sure. For sure, 100%. This guy is going to go, and those 100, like maybe he'll get to number 99, but the last one is going to kill him dead, and then David will no longer be a threat to the majesty of my kingdom right here. So this is really, I'm going to send him off because he wants to marry my daughter so bad, and she definitely wants to marry him, that he has to bring me 100 of the you-know-whats off the you-know-whats of these Philistine guys that he's able to kill. And David does in that passage. You're kind of blown away by the idea of it. In verse 26, it says, when the attendants told David these things, He was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. And if you unpack that passage, what it means is that he was pleased with the method that it was going to take to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and he went out and killed not 100, you heard this right, 200 Philistines. And he brought back their, you know what's off of their, you know what. And then I'm blown away by the next part of this passage is they counted out the full number to the king. So he's like, he's like dealing cards that day. Here's one, here's one, here's one, here's one. <laughs> blown away by the idea of what's happened in this passage of scripture. Like David brought back the full number so that he might not become the king. But wasn't that what God promised him a couple chapters ago? Couldn't he have just taken Saul out in that moment and had the people come up and say, you killed the Philistine, then we're going to make you. Like, wouldn't there have been an easier way without all that Philistine suffering and without all that nastiness? Like, that's just like, why? And at the end of that moment, he didn't become the king. He became the king's son-in-law. One step closer for sure, but it was not the same thing. Just because God is with you does not mean that you will bypass process. It doesn't mean that you're going to be free from all kinds of adversity in life. But, and it also doesn't mean that you get to skip go and pass $200 on the way. It doesn't mean bypassing process. He still had to go through all the difficulty. He still had to do all the grunt work. He still had to become the king's son-in-law before he could become the king. And to do that, he did double what was even asked. That's a big deal. When you're led by the Spirit, it doesn't mean things are going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you won't have to go a difficult, even odd, sometimes gross route. When you're led by the Spirit, it means you can lean into the Spirit. And not only that, you can lead by the Spirit. Because when David went into the army camp to kill not 100 but 200 Philistines, he took an army with him. Men who were willing to follow his leadership. Why? Because he was filled up with the same spirit of God that came upon him powerfully when Samuel anointed him as someone who would one day be the next king over Israel. Not a pass in the moment, but an eventual promise that would be fulfilled. All through this process, he's, he's, he's honoring Saul. 
And that's kind of a weird thing because like Saul is so un- dishonorable, like so un- literally unhonorable in this moment. How, how do you do that? I think that's the I am David story that we could glean out of this passage of scripture maybe the most because how do you honor an unhonorable father if you have one? And I'm sorry if that's your story. How do, how do, you, how do you honor a, a dishonorable boss? And I know that some of you have one. How do, you, how, do you, how do you walk in step in faith with the Lord through difficult circumstances where the people that are in authority over you are living dishonorable lives? Well, You do it by the same powerful spirit that led David to kill a giant and that led him to take the lives of 200 other Philistine men. You do it as a warrior, but not just as a warrior, but someone who is under submission to the king. Not the bad king, but the good king. Because scripture says, Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except which God has established. Verse 7 goes on to say, If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If it's revenue, then revenue. If it's respect, then respect. If it's honor, then honor. So by the Spirit, in full submission to God, who is worthy, we live a life of patient honor towards people who aren't. The wonder in the story, the wonder in this passage, connecting us from one big thing in David's life to another big thing in David's life, it's, it's ultimately in the consumption, being so consumed by the Spirit of God that you walk in step with it, even when it's hard, even when the att- enemy attacks, even when you have to do difficult things. You walk in step with the Spirit. The favor of God, it, it lies with consistency over time being honorable, and doing the right thing. That's for fathers and mothers. It's for kids, sons and daughters. It's for those who have authority. It's for those who are under authority. We're all a David with an opportunity to live an honorable life and to go a very difficult distance in spite of the difficulty that we face. And we're only going to get there we board the right car, going in the right direction. That's what the Spirit of God did for David, and that's what the Spirit of God does for us. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Say to kids, the closing your eyes part is to eliminate distractions. The bowing your heads part is just a reverent way to approach God. And maybe for just a moment, ask yourself this question, am I on the right train? Am I heading in the right direction? Am I doing the honorable thing in my home and in the marketplace and in this community, even when it's difficult? Am I being attacked by the enemy who does not want me to be a successful, faithful Christ follower in my circumstances, which is a really good sign that you are, in fact, being a successful, faith-filled Christ follower in circumstances? And somehow or another... Is there a way that God is using even the difficult authority in your life as a way to shape you into his disciple, a growing, committed follower of Jesus? You only have the Spirit of God on your side if you've received Jesus. And so if you're a person in the room that is not quite 100% on what it means to self-identify as a Christian who who knows what it's like to have trusted Jesus with your whole life, then I just invite you to do that. 
to tell the great God of this universe that you're sorry for being a sinner, recognizing the fact that you are separated from him. Just claim those words. Tell him that you desperately need him, that you want to walk instead with him, that you want his powerful gift of forgiveness to redeem your life and to make you his child. While being a Christ follower is very, very difficult, becoming one is relatively easy. You just express your need. And if you're a person that has done that or is in the process right now of doing that, I just invite you to let me know. I want to walk with you through that part of your story. We can meet in the lobby when you leave today, or you can just indicate it on the card as you turn it in the offering plate when it comes by in a few moments, and I'll follow up with you, and we'll, we'll talk about what it means to surrender your life to Christ. But maybe you're a person in this room who has at one point surrendered their life to Christ, but at another point, you got off on the wrong exit, and you've not been walking in the full power of the Spirit of the Lord, and you recognize now that some of the problems that you've avoided and some of the problems that you've endured are evidence of the fact that you're not living in the Spirit. And you want a course correction. Just tell God that today. Just say, I I don't want to get in the right car. I want to move in the right direction. I I want to be filled up with your Spirit. Slay the giants in my life. Go through the difficult plan that you have for me in order to better be your disciple and make a difference in this world so that all of Israel and all of Nashville can look around and say, wow, we're better because of that guy. God has been made plainer to us and more clear to us because of them. If that's your story, I want to walk with you through that as well. So let me know. Let's talk. Indicate it on a card. I'll follow up. We, we want nothing more to journey with you in this part of your story to know that the great God of this universe has a plan for you to be like David, someone who ultimately points people to Jesus, because that's what this Old Testament story does. God, we give you praise for who you are and for what you've done and for all the great things that are happening in the life of our church. I pray for these brothers and sisters of mine that you would help them know what it means every single day in every single circumstance to walk so closely with you by the power of your Spirit living fully present in their lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite the men and women who are ushers to come forward. Um, This is a chance for those of us who call Rolling Hills Belmont Heights Campus our church home um, to financially give back to God's work here in our community. It's also a chance for those of you who filled out a connection card, like first-time guest or a prayer request card that you would like to be prayed for, or even one of those next step cards saying that, hey, you want to know what it means to become a Christian or you want to know what it means to serve in this church or to walk fully with Christ or even take a next step towards baptism, you can deposit those cards as the baskets pass. And this, too, is an opportunity for us to worship God together. Jesus, we thank you for this day. We give these gifts to you because you've given so many gifts to us. And we tell you thank you for that. Father, would you be blessed by the offerings as they're received and multiply them in great ways to do incredible things throughout this community and our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray blessings on this time. Amen.